Welcome to the Swim Swim Podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Hodges. Joining me today, co-host Mel Stewart. He's uh, such a delight on the camera. And joining us today, part two of James Magnuson. <laughs> diddled around the whole time last time we we did we barely got to your career this time we're going to keep it serious except for these first five minutes <laughs> james <you> posted <laughs> some sick lifting videos on your instagram at james magnuson uh tell us about your bench squat and deadlift adventures <laughs> yeah so i did this tv show in australia called sa australia but basically we did the selection course for the special forces army in Britain and I got right to the end of that course and completed the show but I lost 11 kilos in two weeks um, and was like battered and sore and sorry so I I sat down with uh, one of my mates who's a strength and conditioning coach and I was like let's build myself back up let's get back in shape and so for the past probably 12 weeks I've been working really hard at doing some big lifting um, mostly like, yeah, some of those powerlifting staples. And this last couple of weeks, I've been hitting my straps, so I thought I'd post a bit up and show everyone where I'm at. I'm talking now. I'm talking now. I'm talking so that I can take over the camera. What, why are you still on camera, Coleman? Am I? Am You're, I on, you're camera? on camera, Mel. <laughs> oh, my God. This is not, it's not me. This is a jacked Maggie. <laughs> so, yeah, so just out of curiosity, uh, what, did you, what, did you, what was your race weight? Uh, my race weight was between 92 and 94 kilos. It means nothing to me in the United States. Yeah, I think about 210 pounds. Gotcha. So, yeah. So a little bit jacked. Yeah. Uh, and what are, you, what are you at right now? About 245 pounds. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty, that, yeah, that's, that's, a little, that's what I would call a little bit buff. <laughs> So let's just, here, here's the thing, before we get into the swimming, let's just say this, um, habitualequipment.com, habitualequipment.com. You got into a little bit of it at, because we were just asking out of curiosity, is this, you know, you said this, this, this really ramped up during COVID. Are you a co-founder of this company? Yeah, yeah, I'm a co-founder. So there's three of us in the company. We all kind of met um, through the gym. And uh, yeah, so have values. We've all got different skill sets. Um and so it works really well. And it's uh, so since you were a co-founder of habitualequipment.com, do you have to be jacked? <laughs> or, uh, do, do, well, do you have to keep it buff? Yeah, the other two, the other two co-founders aren't jacked or buffed, so they stay on the other side of the lens. So it's my job <laughs> to be buff. <laughs> You're like the CMO, chief marketing officer. Of- yeah. <laughs> All right, all right. So we, we had to get habitualequipment.com. If you guys haven't been there, check it out. If you're not going to James's uh, Instagram account, it's james.magnuson on IG, james.magnuson. You need to follow him. Good stuff. Last time we talked to you, you were at 2011 World Championships. Hold on, you- hold on, hold on. Oh, oh I'm so sorry, it's- Colin. What? <laughs> well, uh, before we get into swimming again, you, you talked about this reality TV show. 
right? Yeah. So tell, tell, tell me about being on this. You lost 11 kilos, which is crazy. You went through this crazy fitness course. Uh, t- I mean, tell me about that experience. Yeah. So basically it's the induction course or the hell week that they do, um, for the special forces in Britain. Um, I think they do it in the Marines also over there in America. They do that hell week, um, process to kind of weed out all the weak people. So in Australia, it was called, um, the SAS Australia. It was for celebrities. So they started off with 17 of us at the start. And the only way you get out of the show is if you quit or you surrender. Um, so yeah, so 17 of us started off. The first thing we did was drop backwards out of helicopters. Um, we did stuff with guns. The last part of the show um, on the 14th day was torture. So for 18 hours, we got tortured. Um, it was just like this crazy experience. Yeah. I thought you were, I thought you meant figuratively as in like, oh, it was no, really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what? no, literally torture. What, what do you like? how did you get tortured so they put us so we, we did this uh, uh, evade and escape um mission and we inevitably got caught which was kind of the idea of it they roughed us up a bit threw us around dragged us through like paddocks and stuff with german shepherds barking in our faces and all this weird stuff then they uh handcuffed us blindfolded us and put noise cancelling headphones on with the sounds of screaming babies, squealing pigs, explosions, scratching on chalkboards. And they left us in these stress positions for eight hours in, in out in the cold. So it was minus four degrees Celsius. And they left us there for eight hours. And a few people sort of broke and started crying and quit the show. And uh, a couple of us survived it and uh, made it to the end. You didn't break and start crying, buddy? No, nah, it didn't break. They almost got me. <laughs> Towards the end, I just started to flinch a little bit at some of the sounds. I was like, man, I don't have much left in me here. I'm thinking Coleman would break way before I would. Just to, I just want to say, I just want to go on the record. <laughs> I, I'm going to agree with you. I'm, I'm, I don't, it doesn't sound like I could do that. This sounds no. terrible. Why would you do this? It sounds awful. Uh, so they came to me with the idea of the show and they showed me a few uh, clips of it from um, the British version. And I called back my, my agent and I said, no way, that's insane. I'm not doing it. And then I sat back and I started thinking like, oh, I wonder if I could survive that. I wonder if I could jump out of helicopters. I wonder if I could shoot guns. And as soon as that competitive part of me kicked in, I was like, damn, I've got to know. And so I signed up and, uh, and started training for it. Man, all right. Can we, can we talk about swimming now, or we yeah, want to stay please stay on the show? No, swimming, swimming. Go for it. No, I do. okay. We just one more question. What was the most painful? What was the worst thing on the show? Like what? Because you think things are going to suck. You think things are going to make you break, but it's usually something odd. It's something weird where you have a weak spot. What was your weak yeah. spot on the show? Yeah. So my weak spot was the cold. Um, so like I said, it was minus degrees Celsius each day. We're down near. Um, what we call the snowy mountains in Australia, Mount Kosciuszko, if anyone's good with geography. Um, so it was snowing, it was cold. And uh, the, whole, the whole two weeks through the show, we had no showers, no beds, no like hot food. So the whole time you never got warm. And uh, at one point, a couple of us started getting hypothermia. Um, and they basically said, well, you can go to hospital, but you quit the show and you're off, or you can kind of suck it up and keep going. 
So that was the thing, like the day that I nearly got hypothermia, I was like, this is the only thing that's going to break me is this cold weather. Um, and it's something that we're not really adapted to here in Australia. Like in Sydney, it, it never gets that cold. So it was a real shock for me. And the one thing, each night going to bed shivering, it, it ate away at me slowly throughout the two weeks. It makes you know, Here's the thing, you never think about this, but it's like, it's swimmers. A lot of people want to be rock hard. They want to look like they're carved out of stone. The truth is, yeah, it makes you a little bit weak. You need to kick. You need to be a little bit of a bread truck if you want to truly be tough, because the elements will crush you. Yeah, that's right. And the le- the leaner you are, the colder you get, um, and and faster. So that was that was tough. We're talking about swimming now. Let's yeah. talk about swimming. We're going to take you. Here's the thing. Your stories are so great. You left us off in 2011. 2011 blew up. You, you, you have this thing where you, where you become famous, which is something we don't understand in the United States quite so much. But it's uh, your life really turned around. Break, huge breakout moment. And uh, we, I mean, did we get past your individual 100 free? Do we go, do we, do we, or do we need to move to the next chapter? Because it gets interesting after that. Yeah, I think um, we got to about the relay swim, which was my 47.4. Then going into that um, into that final, I think I spoke about they showed that live back in Australia, the only race they showed live, the whole the whole meet. And then uh, when I got back off that plane, I, I realised things had sort of changed because there was media everywhere, there was journalists, there was cameras, there was TV crews, um, everything got got very crazy from that moment onwards. Did you like, did you have a girlfriend and you broke up with her and like, and like, and leveled up? Did you do any of that stuff? Did it get weird? Did you, did you get weird up here? (laughs) Did did it get weird? I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I leveled up or anything like that, but um, yeah, things got pretty crazy. Uh, Yeah. It was cool. (laughs) We're ready for that question. Are you? (laughs) Hey man, we're just we're just talking here. We're just talking. You could just say I don't want to answer your question. You're an asshole. Yeah. I'm not answering that. Hold on. So yes, I mean things things get huge. Things blow up for you. I mean, take us through that journey because that like like Mel said, like I'm sure it gets kind of weird. You said it gets kind of cool, but I mean, take us take us to that like post 2011, pre 2012. Yeah. So leading into t- the 2012 Olympics, it, it just kind of out of coincidence. Uh, as an Australian swim team, as an Australian Olympic team as a whole, we didn't have a lot of gold medal hopes. Um, we're going through a bit of a transition period. Um, and so a lot of that focus fell on myself personally um, for the, our gold medal hopes. So I think leading into the London Olympics, I had about between 10 and 12 personal sponsors that, that I was an ambassador for, banks, cars, subway, shopping centers, uh, like you name it, I was sponsored by them. And for every sponsor, I was doing TV advertisements, I was doing photo shoots, I was doing um, public speaking, I was meeting with boards of directors. Um, it was there was huge billboards of me on um, skyscrapers in the city in Sydney. Um, I've got some really cool pictures where you can kind of look out from a bar and there's a huge huge building in the city and I'm plastered over the whole thing in my speedos. So you can imagine like going to that bar and meeting girls was hard work. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
But um, yeah, things I don't like go really anymore. I think I spoke about in the, in the last podcast. For me, I came from a country town, very humble beginnings. Didn't know a lot of people. wasn't um, wasn't well known in, in in public, and so for me, it was it was a very big change and something that um, I probably struggled with a little bit. Um, I, I used to love swimming. I loved racing, but I loved the moment I walked out of the pool, just shutting that part of my my day, my life off, and not talking about swimming and thinking about swimming until I got back to the pool again. And that was one of my biggest strengths in my early career was that I could shut this uh, this persona on and off around racing, around bravado um, and that kind of thing. But when this changed after 2011, I couldn't get any respite from the swimming world anymore. Um, every time I walked out my front door, you know, people would be stopping me in the street for photos, telling me about their kids who, you know, play in the local football league or something like this, uh, asking for autographs. So it's it, it got really stressful for me and I found it that was the hardest thing I found um, about the preparation for the London Olympics was I couldn't, I couldn't switch off from swimming. And that started to affect my recovery. It started to affect my sleep um, and, and it just made the whole process something very different to what it was leading into the 2011 World Championships. And I thought after 2011, I thought I got this thing down pat. I won the World Champs. I know the process. And then the whole ball game got changed on me and it became almost like a different sport. You have a lot of wisdom looking back on this, but just out of curiosity, was, uh, did you feel you were in promotion mode and you're promoting an entire sport and, and the Olympic movement in your home country, which is, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of responsibility. There is a lot of financial gain. Did you, were you pushed, were you pressured by Swimming Australia or your, the, the Olympic, the, the Australian Olympic Organiza Organizing Committee or uh, did, were you driven because maybe did, were you middle class and like this was the time to cash in? What, what were the pressures? Like, can you just kind of bottom line it? Yeah, I think firstly, um, you know, like I said, I came from very humble beginnings and I'd never been exposed to money like that before. And I just I just turned twenty years of age, um, so like, how do you turn down some of that stuff? You know, I think um, Swimming Australia. It's it's not that they pressured me into anything. I think they shared my confidence in my abilities. So they were like, "This is our guy." We we probably hadn't had a, a huge name in the sport since probably Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett the back end of their career. So, I mean, Grant Hackett finished in 2008. So we'd, we'd had Eamon Sullivan there. Um, he was a pretty big name, I guess. Um, we'd had sort of Steph Rice in 2008, but we probably hadn't had that that poster boy or poster, poster girl. And so I think Swimming Australia kind of jumped on that bandwagon. And, you know, when you went to the state champs or the national champs, it was my face everywhere, you know, everyone. I was being put up for all the media opportunities. All the journalists would come to, to talk to me and stuff like that, which I, I didn't mind at the time. I didn't know any different. And I, I didn't know that that would, could, would or could uh, eventually affect my performance. Um, I just thought I was doing the right thing by everybody around me. And um, 
I, I probably started thinking too much about um, too much about the whole process and not enough about just getting back to the swimming and and, and the performance. So, so take us to trials in uh, in 2012. You drop that legendary 47.10, which mm. was at the time fastest textile swim ever. It's still, I, I'm pretty sure it's still like top five. Has to be yeah. at least top ten. I mean, it's you know, it's an insane time. Um, where were you at that meet? Because you know, again, from the outside looking in, it seems like your your star is still just rising. Yeah, so I was swimming. I was swimming really well in training. Um, I hadn't raced. I hadn't had a big race since the World Championships the year before. So you think the World Champs were probably in August ish, and then our trials were in about March. So I haven't had a big race in six to nine months. Um, I've been training really well, building towards this this trials. Our trials are a long way out from the Olympic Games. Um, so I want to peak at those trials and I want to kind of um, show everyone, you know, what hard work I've been doing in, in that sort of period where no one's heard from me. So um, the thought process going into that trials was, right, I've swum at the world champs and I've turned in sixth or something and managed to win the race. What, what does it look like if I turn first? And what, what does it look like if I just use a little bit more speed in that first 50 meters. So that's what we did. I went out faster than I'd ever gone out before. I think it was 22.6 seconds. And I got a bunch of clear water and I, I did a time that um, that even I was surprised by at the time, really. Um, I was looking towards the Olympics to have a crack at that world record, but I was surprised by that 47.1. And the funny thing about that 47.1 is I got out of the water. I spoke to my coach. Coaches always play things down, but he was like, uh, I give that probably an eight out of 10. It's like, there's a few <laughs> things that executed better. And I was like, whoa, it felt pretty damn good to me. And he's like, uh, eight out of 10. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that was, and, and off the back of that, I think, you know what that did? It masked a lot of those external things that were going on, those external pressures. Had I had a, a swim not as fast, at that trials, it probably would have woken us all up a little bit to uh, things probably aren't as optimal as they could be. But I swim that 47.1 and it was all like everyone around me, everyone went, ah, we told you so, like, this is the guy. Swimming Australia is like, yeah, you know, we've backed the right, we've backed the right horse. All my sponsors are like, yep, this is the guy. And, and for me, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like I believe that too. I was like, yep, you know, I, I, I really believed at that time. I honestly believed that I could go the rest of my career without ever getting beaten. And um, as a 20-year-old, you know, it's pretty naive. It's pretty ignorant. But it's part of what made me a really good racer. Um, even in the twilight of my career, there was races that I look back on and I was like, I was never going to win that race. But if you asked me before I walked out behind the blocks, I'm sure I could convince you that I was going to win that race. So that was that was kind of the that was the landscape at the time. Everyone started like beating their chest and going, "Yeah, this is our guy," and uh, and and I believed it. the The crazy thing about that time, and and I guess as we talk about the lead into the London Olympics, 
so I raced the World Championships in July, August. I think the London Olympics were in about August. Again, I didn't do one international race in that whole time. I didn't race one of my competitors I was going to be racing at the Olympics in that entire 12 months. And beyond that, between the Australian Olympic trials in April and the Olympic Games in August, I didn't even race once. I did not do one race. And the thinking from the people in Australia, uh, my coaching staff and the Australian swim team staff was, let's shelter him away from everybody else. Let's train him up. And so they, don't, they won't know what hits them when we release him on the world stage. Um, of course, everyone already knew where I was at. Everyone knew I was swimming fast. Everyone knew I was the guy to beat. So it didn't really come as much of a surprise tactic for anyone else. But um, in my reflections on London and what went wrong or why I didn't swim my best time in London, I see that as the glaring issue that I had no race practice um, in essentially 12 months. I mean, I raced at our Olympic trials, but no one really challenged me there. And so for 12 months, every race I did, I led from the first five metres to the last. And I never once had my race plan challenged. I never once had my thought process challenged. I never once had my confidence challenged. The first time that happened was at the Olympic Games. That's something we take for granted in the United States is that, uh, you know, you're, there's the population so big. There's always talent. Everyone's always being challenged. They don't have to travel too far. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's very insightful. I, did, I, I forgot that, you know, it was a, that 47 one was, was mind blowing for everyone. And it, so it sounds like between that 47 one also in the Olympic games, you, on top of not being, you know, sharpening your knife, you also had all the uh, celebrity promotion happening. Yeah. And which, in, in hindsight, right, so Australia was getting crazy. In hindsight, the perfect thing to do there is let's base ourselves out of America. Let's base ourselves out of Europe. Let's go and race the Americans or the Europeans. Let's take away all the fanfare and let's get on the blocks next to those guys that you're going to be racing in a couple of months' time. We did the opposite. We sat smack bang in the middle of all the fanfare and celebrity and we shied away from racing any of those um, international competitors. So, um, you know, hindsight's a great thing. And, and my whole coaching staff, nobody in and around my team had ever been to an Olympic Games or coached an Olympic Games or experienced an Olympic Games. So, you know, we probably needed some outside help there. Um, but when, you, when you're swimming 47-1, um, help isn't something that you really go looking for. That's a good point. Uh, really yeah. Good point. Take us to take us to take us to that first relay, because everybody everybody you know this is a very swim nerd chlorinated audience you're talking to. Everyone mm -hmm. knows what it's like to rest, to shave, to taper, have your first swim, and it and the and the board doesn't show what it should show, and uh, yeah. that was that was just that was like that was a whoa moment. That was like because everyone's like, hey, is Maggie on or not? Yeah, that first well, I think um, so we did a, a training camp in Manchester leading into London for about two weeks and I was tapering off. It was probably like for me back then I'd have around a, a four-week taper leading into racing. It's pretty long, but that was what I liked. 
Um, and I was out of form. Um, I wasn't swimming fast in training. My training times weren't coming easy. My stroke rates were a little off. The feel of the water wasn't right. And then um, I wasn't sleeping well. Uh, things started feeling really off. And I just kept coming back to, you're, you're at 47.1, you've got, you've got a gap. You've got a gap to the rest of the world. I think at that stage, the next person might have been like 47.8 or something. So I'm thinking like, I've got this buffer. If these guys are going 47.8, I'm going 47.1. You know, I can, I can be a little off my game and still be okay. So I'm telling myself, you're all right, you're all right. My coach is telling me you're all right. But I'm not swimming well. Um, and then we get into the Olympic Village and that is like a world in its own. You know, the, the beds are six foot long. I'm six foot five. The food's different. You're walking kilometers a day to get to buses, to get to pools, to get to um, different venues and stuff. And I was like, wow, like everything was just like blowing my mind. And the whole time I'm just coming back to all you've got to do is swim that 47.1 again. All you've got to do is swim that 47.1. So I keep reassuring myself. Anyway, that gets to the relay and the, the guys, uh, so the whole time leading into the Olympics, I said to my coach, I don't want to swim the heat in the relay. I swam the heat. Uh, I didn't swim the heat at the world champs the year before and I smoked it in the final. Let's just back that in again. And, and people are starting to say, oh, he's not looking that good in training. He needs that hit out in the morning. He needs that hit out. So I swim in the morning. We're next to America. Um, we, we go in behind like a body length behind America in the heat. And Jason Lezak is anchoring for America. And I just had this thought in my head, we have to be in lane four for the final tonight if we're going to win. So I empty the tank in the morning. I beat Jason Lezak. I get us on the wall. I think I split like 47.5 or 47.6, something like that. I'm thinking in my head, I've just split 46.5. Like I'm hooking right now. I'm going really hard. The coach gives me the splits. I've split 47.5. I've absolutely emptied the tanks. I'm like, well, I need to have a really big rest today before this final tonight. Go back to the village. Again, the craziness, can't sleep. Come back that night. They sit, they start talking to our relay team. They're like, if we're, if we're going to win this relay, it's, we need James to break the world record in that first leg. Like that's, that's our thing, right? I'd swum 47.4 the year before and we'd won the relay just. This year, the other teams have gotten a bit faster. Australia's team, uh, like maybe not so much. So if we're, if we're going to win this relay, they need a world record split from me in the first leg. So suddenly I'm walking out there for this relay swim. I'm, re- I'm swimming my first final at Olympic Games. I want to do my best swim. I want to help the relay out. But I've literally been told the way we win this relay is for you to break the world record in the leadoff leg. So all I'm thinking about going out to swim this race is I have to break the world record in this race, which is such an unhealthy mindset when you're trying to think about a process and, and execute a race plan. And that race was, I, I can't, I honestly can't remember the race as such and what went wrong, what went right, how the technique was, anything like that. I just know I swam 48 seconds, I think 48 or 48.2 somewhere around there and I was I touched the wall and looked up at the time and I was just like what on earth just happened like what was that like I didn't even have time to process it and then we walk off pool deck 
and the Australian media has a big presence in the um, in the media zone because swimming is our number one sport, and the Australian media goes feral, absolutely feral. You've let down Australia. We needed you on that. That was one of our only two gold medal chances. Um, how are you ever going to win the individual? Um, I literally had a journalist ask me, what does it feel like to have just let down your country? And it's the straight off, straight out of the pool. So I was like, oh my God. And I just like went into a shell. I went back to the Olympic Village. I was sitting there with my coach trying to like talk about what went wrong. All I could think about was all these people that I'd let down back in Australia. And it just... Uh, that relay swim in particular really crushed me because I felt like I let down the other three guys in my in my team. I felt like I let down the whole country. And suddenly I'd gone into the meet as a 47-1 swimmer. I'd come out of that race as a 48-1 swimmer um, and things were just in turmoil. You were 48-03, um, yeah, way off the 47.1. I think everybody has that first swim after a big taper. And you're kind of, you're like, this is where I, cause this, that first swim tells you where you're at. But mm. after that race, I don't, I don't, I think, I don't know how many people had a reporter tell them, Hey, you've let your entire country down. Yeah. That's awful. That's awful. Here's the thing. So the, the, your, your, your individual under with this framing feels really like a Herculean performance because uh, you know, it's, you got a lot of chest air if you're going to go 47, five. Yeah. Um, but you're, it sounds like your brain was scrambled heading into the race. How did you get your head together for that race? Yeah, so the, most people would be, be surprised by this, but I'm actually quite proud of that 47.5. Um, it was one of the better swims I put together, I believe, in my career. Not necessarily physically. I've, I've swum better races. I've swum faster. I've had better technique. But mentally, to get up on those blocks and and – you know, in, in any other Olympics in history, do enough to, to get a gold medal. Um, I, was, I was really proud of myself. Um, it was a tough four or five days. The social media, like I said, was very new at the time. I think I mentioned in the last podcast. So I was getting a stream of messages through social media telling me how useless I was, telling me how I'd let people down. Um, and, you know, didn't have the tools back then to switch off those notifications and to kind of filter through that and to not listen to that stuff. So I was just getting a barrage of negativity all week leading into the final of this, um, this 100 freestyle. So the heats still didn't feel great, got through it. The semis started to feel a little bit better and qualified fastest for the final. And there was just like this glimmering hope, like, Maybe we can still get this done, Mike. And the crazy thing was, you know, I was still going into that. I was still going into that final with the intention of winning, but I wasn't sure if I could win. And um, and that's insane. That's like it's crazy to think that that was my thought. And I remember I went to the change rooms before the race, and I was putting my suit on, and I looked in the mirror, and uh, my eyes were bloodshot. My face was pale. I, I just, I didn't have the air of confidence or arrogance that I always carried myself with. And that scared the shit out of me right before I walked out on pool deck. And, uh, and I, I speak to um, young kids about this all the time now um, in, in post-career. And 
it's it's really is the truth. I've I've never won a race in my career that I didn't believe I could win. And I went into that race without a firm belief that I was going to win. And um, to this day, I believe that's why I lost. Regardless of how the race panned out, regardless of, you know, how close it was, regardless of the fact that Nathan swam the race of his life, for me, that's the reason I lost that race. And it was that moment when I looked in the mirror, I saw my bloodshot eyes, and I saw fear that, that I lost things. And, and I made a concerted effort from that point in my career onwards to, to, change, um, to change that. So we're down to six minutes. Uh, dang it. But so a great follow-up is this, is to, so you made a concerted effort to change it. Take us to 2013. Yeah. So 2013. So after London, I'm like, I'm, I'm getting back. I'm going to assert my dominance as the best freestyle in the world. I think I swam a stretch of like 15, 47 points in one season or something. This time the world championships is coming up. And I've learned my lesson. We go to Europe and we race all the way up until the world championships. I race at the French Open. I race at like these European meets, winning everything, swimming 47s. Get to the world championships. Again, I'm the one to beat. So again, there's a lot of pressure. Again, the Australian media are saying, is he a one-hit wonder? Is he not? Heap of pressure. And it gets to that freestyle final. And that, in my opinion, that is one of the, the best 100 freestyle races uh, that I've seen or been a part of. Um, so Vladimir Morozov goes out 21.9 in the first 50 metres of the 100 free out of World Championships. And I was in lane six, so I'd, I'd had a good heat and a really poor semi-final. I'd missed the, the turn in the, the semi-final. And my stroke was a bit off. But this time I've got, the, I've got the bravado back. I've been in Europe, I've been racing, I've been winning. Bad semi-final, you know what, I'm still doing my thing. So we're swimming in the final. I think I've got Nathan Adrian and Jimmy Fagan inside me. Vladimir Morozov is out in lane one or two. Swimming into the turn. I turn and as I turn, I see underwater a swimmer on the way back the second 50 at the five meter mark. And that's the first time I've ever really been thrown off in a race by competitors. I remember just thinking like, something must be wrong. Like, that's not right. Who is that? I couldn't think in my head who was out in lane one. And it kind of confused me a little bit. But because I'd been doing that racing and because I'd kind of nailed down that confidence again, I stuck to my race plan. I had a huge amount of wash in that second 50 metres because everyone had gone out really fast. So I think I turned maybe sixth or seventh in that race, way back off the lead group. And so I hit a huge amount of wash on that second 50 and the second 50 felt like one of the hardest I'd ever done because I was in like a washing machine and I wasn't really used to being that far behind. Anyway, I'm breathing to the same side as Morozov. And as we get to the 25 meters to go, he's still like, I can just see his feet. He's still so far ahead. And so I, I kind of just started ripping into that last 25. Uh, Nathan Adrian and Jimmy Fagan were still both ahead of me as well. The last, probably 10 metres, uh, I closed my eyes in that race. So I, I never used to close my eyes. And I was in so much pain in the back end of this race. And I'd just come off losing uh, the, the Olympic Games. I was like, I've got to dig deep here and, and get to a space I haven't to before. So I closed my, my eyes. I went hypoxic. I knew my stroke count to the wall. 
and I just ripped and teared that last 10 metres. And I think the first point in the whole race where I took the lead was with about two metres to go and, uh, and, I, and I got that win. And for me, that was, uh, that was probably the most uh, gratifying win of my career because I had all these people questioning me. Um, I had those memories of the year before. And uh, for me, I was like, yep, I've now shown the world that, um, you know, I am a premier sprinter. It wasn't a fluke the first time and, and I belong here um, on the world stage. So that was um, a really exciting moment for me. I think that we need a part three. We need a part three. I think we need a number three. Would you come back for another one? Yeah. Do you, do you remember <laughs> that race when Morozov went out 21.9? Oh yeah, dude, we're nerds. We yes, we live. Yeah. In, it's like going to church. I'm surprised, I'm surprised nobody's done it since, though, right? Like no one's ever really thrown it out there like that again. <laughs> Him reading twos to go twenty one nine feet on, it is insane speed. Dude, I mean that that dude that dude can do some crazy stuff. <laughs> He's, yeah, uh, absolutely. But <clears throat> all right, it's been decided. We're getting a part three because we made it through enough. We chipped away. We made it through another two years of your career. But thank you as always, James. It's you're. It's so fun hearing your stories and and your brutal honesty. Uh, it's it's no, it's great God. talking to you. Until next time. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swim Podcasts on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.